everybody welcome to a scene snobs three geeks collaboration interview we are joined today by tom mclaughlin how are you doing today i does this make me the third geek here yeah <laughs> for the night you are absolutely That's absolutely great. i i will embrace that you're a lot cooler than these two geeks up here though <laughs> you've done cooler things <laughs> well i'm certainly much older there's no question about that but COVID didn't get to me, so if COVID didn't get to me, then uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. That's good. That's good that COVID didn't get to you. I'm going to start somewhere you wouldn't expect, probably, but you were in Critters too. No, how do you yeah. go about getting that role? That comes with being friends with Nick Garris. Um, Nick and I have been friends since 1982, maybe. Um, I did a screening of One Dark Night. Um, at, this, at USC and he was at the screening and he came up afterwards and said how much he loved the movie and he's working towards being the director himself and we just created a bond and he's been so helpful in so many different jobs I've had over the years you know doing amazing stories um, the others um, obviously part of the masters of horror and um, and then uh, Critters was like you know well, I've been using directors doing cameos so you know I'd love to have you do it that's how that happened. Awesome. Critters is one of my favorite movies, series of all time. It's so good. Um, yeah, I was looking at your IMDb, and I'm like, that's so cool. He was in Critters. but um, <laughs> Especially such a chaotic scene in Critters, too. That whole church scene is just mayhem. Yeah, really. And I have to say, I was telling, I didn't know this because we were doing our research, and uh, you were the Jabberwocky in the Alice in Wonderland TV movie, and that is the only terrifying image I remember from that movie. <laughs> you know, it, it's. Uh, I was about to say, how come you're not mentioning the Jabberwocky? Because that's that that comes up just out of left field so many times. Like I'm at these conventions and signing all this Friday the Thirteenth shit, and then somebody comes up with a Jabberwocky picture and said, "You know how much that scared me when I was a kid?" And I thought, God, that didn't seem like it was that scary at all. And of course, when you're doing it, and the only reason I did it is because it was a chance to meet Ringo and all these stars that were doing that thing. And I thought, all right, you know, I'll get into a suit and you know, do the gig. Uh, it, yeah, it was a crazy show. Well, like oh, McGarris, yeah. your buddy, you did a Stephen King adaptation. One of my favorite Stephen King adaptations, which is Sometimes They Come Back. Oh, I thanks. rented that movie so many times because my grandmother did not like cussing in her house. And there uh -huh. were no F words in that movie. So yeah. I rented it every time I went there because it's the <laughs> only horror movie I knew that didn't have any cussing. And one that was legitimately terrifying oh thanks yeah i mean we we were making it and this was crazy as a director to try to do this we were making it for um like scope um cinema scope in europe so we had to you know we had to watch the composition and at the same time it was going to be a cbs stephen king movie so you know everything was the tv square so it constantly had to keep checking the frame to see if you're losing something you know one way or the other on, on one of the framings and so uh, as a result, 
obviously most of the kills and things were done in a way that, you know, I pushed it a little bit, but if they needed to cut it back, they could and not sacrifice too much. And I think there was only one shot in the television version where the guys throw his, you know, what's his name, Chip, throw his head out the window and you see it kind of bounce on the, on the bridge and go over. Uh, you know, that's the only thing I remember actually, you know, them taking out. <laughs> well, for, for sometimes they come back, um, you know, it being a Stephen King adaptation uh, and, you know, stepping into that role, like, what's that like? Because I know, you know, so many, only so many directors have done it. You know, Mick Garris being one of them, of course, yeah. but like stepping into that and taking over a Stephen King entity, you know, there's one he hates for sure. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Know? We all know that. Yeah. You know, how did you feel? Like, what was, what type of, any type of pressure was there to like take this on or? Well, it was, no, it, it kind of was one of those things that, uh, you know, so many Stephen King movies were getting made. And I, you know, I read this script and it wasn't really great, you know, and then I went back and read the short story and went, there's more that can be done with this. And luckily Dino De Laurentiis, who had the rights to it, agreed with me. And, you know, we found another writer whose name just went out of my head. Shit, I'll think of it. Um, and he and I kind of worked up, you know, the stronger family element to it and, you know, the, the, you know, the scarier kinds of kid stuff, you know, when you're a kid and the stuff that was scary to you and tried to, you know, interlace that through. But the big thing that happened for me um, is that right before I did it, as I was leaving Los Angeles, my daughter had just been born. My father had just died. Mick and I had 40 shows that we were, you know, having to get directors and writers for um, She-Wolf of London and they came from outer space. And I was directing like a five camera uh, show for Showtime for my best friend, Stephen Banks called Home Entertainment Center. And all of that was happening on top of each other. And then I was off to Kansas to start this thing. So I was like a mess and sort of on auto control, you know, through the whole process. But as a result, there's just a lot of very personal things that were in there. And, and the identification with Tim Matheson and I, you know, kind of bonding how that character was done. And so it, it's amazing when I look at it now and listen to the Terry O'Mary score, it's like, you know, I, I think I should have this played at my funeral. I love this score. You know, it's really heartfelt. It, it's, you know, it just kind of all worked out. But it wasn't so much, you know, the Stephen King name. This is just like, uh, you know, God, I wish we could do this as, as a feature, which it was overseas. But, you know, I, I didn't think there was going to be any future of it because, you know, uh, said, would you be interested in doing any, uh, you know, sequels? And I said, uh, no, that's okay. Just, you know, pay me double and that'll be it. And of course there was two more sequels that happened. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I, I really um, loved, that, you know, when I was younger, and listen, we're going to get into Friday the 13th, but I, I want to talk about Friday the 13th, the series, which you directed about five episodes, four or five episodes of. Yeah, and I was also the LA story editor on that as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was such a great show, and I know it threw a lot of people off because it was called Friday Thirteenth, and it was so different. Yeah. But, um, and it was very new, I think, for a lot of people for a supernatural show of that time, like investigators, like X Files is nowhere to be seen yet, and that was like yeah, yeah. a big one. Mm -hmm. um, 
Do you have any uh, special, like, uh, you know, memories or stories that come out of that show, like preparing it, prepping it? And sort of? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, there's a really good book uh, that came out on it. And um, Lisa, Lisa, I'm doing great on the names today. Um, again, I've got to <laughs> look it up to remember, but she, she really did a very expansive um, series of interviews and researching all the things. And if you're a fan, you know, that's a really great book. But from my standpoint, um, Frank wanted me to do the, you know, part seven of Friday the 13th. And I just basically said I didn't have any really good ideas and I didn't want to, you know, kind of jump in and, you know, redo what I just did. Um, so then short time later, he came back with this, well, we're going to do a Friday the 13th series. And I went, how are you going to do that with Jason? He goes, no, it's not going to be Jason. It's going to be actually this antique place that collects all of these, you know, cursed objects. And we've got three people that have to go out and bring them back in. I said, well, that could be an interesting premise. So every week it's a different cursed object. And yeah, and somebody that has it and stuff. So, you know, it sounded like, you know, a good way to do all kinds of stuff, you know, myths and legends and just, you know, complete un unusual ideas. Like the one thing I directed Master of Disguise, you know, was John Wilkes Booth's uh, makeup case that was cursed. So the actor had to kill somebody, sop up their blood with the makeup sponge, pour it on the, the case, and then it would open and they could, you know, he could make himself look like Timothy Dalton, you know, James Bond at that time. So, um, you know, I just thought that was such a great, you know, out there idea. Uh, the tough thing was, it was, we were shooting in Toronto before there really was an industry other than Canadian shows. So, you know, we got these, you know, very good, uh, you know, young up and coming, you know, film crew guys, but they worked them to death. I mean, it's like each week another director would come up and these guys were just burnt out from the last. Yeah. Guy, it's kind of the classic Canadian thing that, you know, they just, they just do it, you know, and, and I, one of the funniest things I ever saw in my life was that I was shooting and the boom operator had the boom up and he was literally out, you know, passed out with his head down. And as the actors moved, he just moved the, the boom around like he was, you know, working with the force or something. And I thought, that's incredible. You know, and sound mixer came over and you're, are you, are you up? Yeah. Huh? What? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a skill. That show was definitely a precursor to Charmed and Buffy. Like I can mm -hmm. see, moments that inspired those two shows yeah yeah they were doing war of the worlds up there too at the same time uh which was another i don't know if that has a fan base still does it that the war of the worlds uh uh yeah i would say it's it's probably more of a cult fan base but yeah i would definitely say there's there's a good sizable amount of people yeah um, but for me I, i'm really interested in like uh you know you're you've been an actor well i mean you still act but yeah you as an actor, producer, writer, and especially a director, how did it? How did you go from acting into directing? Like, where did it really fall for you? And you're like, I need to. This is something I really want to pursue. The kind of simple answer is that it always was directing, and that's having a father 
who went to USC film school, graduated like in 1949, hoping to get into the industry with his 16 millimeter camera and his knowledge of, you know, the classic films at that time. And nobody would hire him, you know, the it's like film school, what the hell are you talking, you know, you know, you get in here because you got a relative, you know, or, you know, you're banging somebody and, you know, you get a job and you, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. So he basically took a job in a, in a paint store where he met my mother within about a half a year or so. She was pregnant with me. He moved to Culver City. So the whole backlot of MGM studios was my playground. And he kind of lived vicariously through me. You know, here, here's an eight millimeter camera, just don't get caught. So on the weekends, me and my friends would, you know, climb under the fence, or if it was another part of the lot, climb over the fence, and we'd shoot in these huge sets, you know, and of course, you know, our shit looked like nothing, but these sets <laughs> it looked like, you know, we really, you know, had some money or something. And, you know, all funky little eight millimeter stuff that you had to send it away to Kodak. And then sometimes part of it would come back. Usually, you know, something was missing one of the reels. So the movies never really all came together. It was just like a series of sections of movies. But that's what I wanted to do. And one of the things that I did back in those days is I saw a director's chair, you know, and it just said director on the back. Um, and so I grabbed it and when we went out, you know, it took it with me. And I didn't know who the director was on the back till years later. You know, I mean, I literally have the chair sitting right next to me here. John Sturgis and like, you know, Magnificent Seven was like one of my favorite, you know, movies when I, I had no idea this was the same guy who, who I still have his chair after all these years. But that really kind of was the, was what I wanted to do, you know, make movies. And then rock and roll happened, you know, come 62, 63. And suddenly it's like, nope, you know, girls are screaming. You know, I got kicked out of seven high schools for long hair. This was what I was going to do, you know, going to be the Hollywood version of Mick Jagger. And, you know, that was it. So I got completely away from it. Then led, that led me into studying mime because I wanted to be a little more of a visual performer and be different from all the heroes that I had, James Brown and Roger Daltrey and the person, Mick, uh, you know, Mick uh, Jagger. And I, you know, I thought that's what was going to happen when I came back to the States, but it was just the opposite. I was on a street corner performing, making whatever I made for dinner that night. And that led to me meeting Woody Allen to work with him on Sleeper. Then that led to, you know, Prophecy. And, you know, I started using the mind training to get into all these films and getting my film education by working on sets. So I was you know, basically getting, you know, paid to hang around and ask questions. So, you know, little by little, you know, once writing One Dark Night, that was, you know, finally uh, which was 1980, you know, I was finally able to you know, get that going. But it was from leaving Paris in 71 to 80, you know, the, the big gap of, you know, paying dues and doing whatever you could. One of your parents didn't mime too, correct? Um, my dad was thrilled when I was doing movies and so doing magic because he was also a magician. Once <laughs> once I started to marry to the, the Beatles and the long hair and getting kicked out of high schools, no, you know, we, we just, I mean, that was it. And once I started to get back into movies again, then we were bonded like, you know, nobody. And one of the things that some, some of the fans know of Friday the 13th, that the whole scene where Jason's head is being chopped up with the propeller was in my parents' pool. 
um, because we couldn't do it at USC where we did most of it and obviously not on the lake because we do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I said, well, dad, this is going to like, this is going to be parts and crap that's going to get in your filter. That's fine. You're making a movie. And he was out there with a little Instagram, <laughs> it's about Instamatic camera shooting. And he was just so thrilled that there was, you know, a movie that his son was making in his backyard. So, you know, that it was a strange bonding. And the only other time I met somebody that had a similar childhood into becoming uh, somebody was Eddie Van Halen. And Eddie and I were friends for, God, I don't know, five years or so. I mean, Christmases together, Halloweens together, all of that, you know, got very close to their family, mainly because I was making movies with Valerie Bertinelli. And so, you know, my family and their family just kind of became one. And, you know, Wolfie and my daughter, you know, were sort of boyfriend, girlfriend. She got her first kiss from Wolfie. So, you know, but Eddie had the exact same thing where, and I said this to him, he went, that's exactly like my dad and I. He wanted to be this musician and I was the one that carried the torch. And somehow that kind of bonded us on a, in a strange way. Uh, oh, that's it is kind of an unusual thing. Well, sorry for your loss. I mean, he was musical icon. Oh yeah, it it it, it really laid me out for a couple of days. I you know because I wasn't like a Van Halen fan. So when I was meeting him, I wasn't like in love with the band. Going holy shit! You know, I was a filmmaker, and their band came in kind of after I left rock and roll in '69. Um, so you know, I knew they were great. I loved their music and stuff. But until you start to get you know, close to somebody and go to the concerts in the limousine with them and stand backstage and, you know, so suddenly you go, holy shit, this, this, is, this guy's legendary and such an amazing person. I mean, really the sweetest guy. So, yeah, his death, uh, I knew he was sick, but I didn't know he was that sick. And so, that, I mean, that really came like a, you know, freight train hitting me. I'm sorry for that. I, you know, I, Jason, I don't know uh how to ask this because you've worked with two horror icons you've, <laughs> you've directed two horror icons and i gotta know which one's your favorite i mean i think i know where it's gonna go but you yeah. worked you worked with freddie in an episode yeah. of Freddy's nightmares and you worked with of course jason in the best and i'm saying it now hands down best episode of oh, the franchise wow. I take that as a huge compliment from you that's great thank you i appreciate it i just rewatched it prior to the interview because I just used the interview as an excuse to rewatch it. And I'm like, man, I wish this guy had made the next one, but you said you <laughs> had a great idea for it. But uh, I would have loved to see you continue with the franchise because horror has never really had, exception of Wes Craven and Scream, has never had somebody who just sticks around for more than one or two movies, especially Freddie and Jason. Yeah. Well, e either they don't want to because they're really not in love with the genre, or in my case, Truly, I put everything I could think of into that at that time, and then said, "Well, if you had come up, you haven't come up with something. What about Freddie and Jason?" And I went, "How are you going to do that? You're Paramount, their new line." He goes, "Well, I'm working on it." And then he came back about a week later and said, "Nope, they're not going to let that happen." And he got any other ideas? And I said, "Well, you guys have Cheech and Chong, right?" "Yeah, why?" And I said. Cheech and Chong meet Jason, just like happened at Costello meet Frankenstein. He goes, no, it's not the same audience. I said, wait a minute. If all these people smoke the same weed, you know, they're going to go in, they're going to laugh, and they're also going to, you know, love the gore, you know. And the, the, you know, I think it's going to attract, you know, certain people, and they're not going to be happy that it's a Jason movie. And 
So we let it go. Um, but if he had said yes, that would have happened. I would have done that. That would have made my day. That would probably be my favorite yeah. horror crossover of all time. But uh, let's, let's get into it. How did you get the role for Friday the 13th 6? Well, it was one of those things where I, when I would go out with my script for One Dark Night, a um, lot of rejection, purely because it wasn't a slasher movie. You know, those were so big, you know, uh, during that time period that, you know, you would have a, a producer go, well, this is, you know, interesting and stuff and kind of, you know, Edgar Allan Poe kind of stuff like Roger Corman used to do. But, you know, if you could get some place, forest, you know, uh, you know, a huge building, something where teenagers are and some guy in a mask, I don't care what kind of mask, and something that covers his face to the end, and, you know, then we could talk about making a movie. And I, I, that's just not well, who I am or what I want to do. Um, it, it, you know, th there's just to me no, you know, the, the kind of fear that I loved was that supernatural kinds of stuff. And part of that was because I went down into the catacombs when I was in Paris and I felt that weird thing of having bones and skulls on all sides of you when you had a candle and you walked through and I went, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I'm, I got to do something with the way I felt. And that's what One Dark Night was, was that idea of somebody being trapped now in a, you know, a mausoleum and the crypts opening up and the coffins coming out and, you know, sort of a fun thrill ride, you know, down that, that path of horror. So uh, when the Friday the 13th offer came, uh, I was getting very close to making Date with an Angel, with romantic fantasy, and my agent just said, well, take the meeting. They're going to make this movie. And I, and I said, I want to do comedy. And he goes, well, talk to him about that. So I met with Frank. Uh, he said, look, I, I, I've got one request. Bring back Jason. I don't care how you do it. We fucked up on part five. People were really pissed that it wasn't Jason at the end of the day. And the idea that maybe Tommy Jarvis is going to be the next Jason, they didn't like it. So figure out some way to bring him back. And I went, okay, Frankenstein. I mean, to me, you know, that's the go-to way to bring somebody to life. It's lightning. So I took that, I went to the, which now the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and wrote this treatment rather quickly, and all that sort of stuff kind of came in. I wanted the characters to be likable. I wanted to put real kids in it. I wanted Jason to have an agenda, which is getting back at the asshole that brought him, you know, back to life. And Tommy also having an agenda, trying to get people to, you know, realize that Jason was back. So it had a little more of a story arc and, you know, a scene where the mythology could be talked about one more time in a sort of laughy way. And those elements, I thought, well, either the fans are going to hate it or they're going to go for it. I, I wasn't sure. So, we, you know, we, I had carte blanche on that, which I don't know if I ever, you know, would be able to get that again. I don't know if anybody could get that again. There's so many committees, you know, involved now with making anything. But Frank trusted me. He was amazing, you know, and supportive. And there was, I think the only thing that he actually had me take out of the script was I was going to introduce Jason's father in that at the end. Um, and he said, mm, you know, if people think that the next movie is going to be about Jason's dad, we're in trouble. So take that out and just let it go with, you know, with Jason's down there and his eyes, you know, staring, which was the other piece of that that I, I was planning on shooting anyway. So that kind of is, you know, how that whole thing came together. And once that 
happened, um, it was, you know, I was getting a lot of like doing sequels, you know, I, New Line called me in to do um, Nightmare uh, 4, I guess it was. And I said, oh, okay, I'd love Freddy, that would be great. And when do you start shooting? Oh, we're already shooting. What do you mean you're already shooting? It's like, yeah, we got two units already going, you know, on effects. And I said, I can't be a director and come in and other things have already been done and decisions are made and things. I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of come from that old school that it's, you know, even if it's not my script, I've got to filter it through me so I, I know everything there is to know and every question I can answer and stuff. And they go, you know, well, we need somebody who's willing to come in and just, you know, go with it, you know, which ended up being Rennie Harlan. And, you know, bad business decision on my part because, you know, Rennie did incredibly well on, on part four. Um, but I sort of went, you know, I was always trying to hold on to something where, you know, you had that control and I just got spoiled really big time, you know, with, with Jason Lives. And, uh, and then Dino De Laurentiis, I met him at a party, Frank Mancuso Sr. and Jr. went, you know, this kid and Gino, Dino came over and he says, are you gonna give me a horror movie, uh, Tom? And I said, no, but I got a great romantic fantasy comedy. <laughs> So I, you know, got him to go ahead with Date with an Angel. So, you know, I kind of moved from one film to the other within a period of a year. Um, and then Dino had, sometimes they come back. So obviously, you know, that was the next thing in line. Oh, that's awesome. So, so for, uh, with doing that though, like, um, you know, obviously you you put together this movie and, and uh, Friday the 13th and it was just, still to this day, like it's, it, the formula of that movie I think a lot of people try to mimic. Like you had the right amount of camp, comedy, horror. It all felt really, you know, like real. Um, because I think because you added the children in there and they had never been in there before. Um, what, what, how did it stand out to you when you were, you know, having seen the first five movies and knowing like what they wanted with Jason, knowing that you were taking it more into a more, what would become iconic, mm -hmm. as the Frankenstein version. Um, but like, what made you add these elements to make it, you know, did you think like, all right, this is the way it needs to be to kind of refresh it? Yeah, I think there was two things. One, the original Friday the 13th, you know, with the mom and just the fact that it was so much more gory and graphic than Halloween was certainly lend itself to that. Wow, we haven't seen this before. And everybody, you know, ran to see that movie and obviously it, it did well enough that it's like okay we got to do a sequel what are we going to do the little boy now nah, we can't do that uh you know we got to keep the girl the you know alice, uh, alice, name right, alice. um and and then they came up with the you know the guy in, in the forest with the elephant man bag over his head and said okay we'll do this the timeline <laughs> completely off but everybody's got a theory about that and so then it was just sort of, to me, you know, kind of revamping those same kind of rules uh, in different ways. Personally, part four was my favorite. I thought Joe Zito did a great job of saying, okay, we're gonna wrap it up. We're gonna, you know, the, the acting was better. There are so many elements to, to it that I thought was great. And in part five, I could see, obviously the problem of it not being Jason at the end of the day, but it was just, it felt, a little slimier somehow and, and grittier and that you know that said and god rest his soul you know 
he's no longer with us, Danny Steinman. But one night they were showing all the Friday the 13th, and I was coming out of you know my part six with you know, kind of having done Q and A and stuff. And Quentin Tarantino, who I knew from the Masters of Horror, was going in, and I'm going, "Are you going to see Part Five? He goes, "Yeah, it's the best one." I mean, no offense, I love yours; it's great, it's great. But Part Five is a fucking Friday the Thirteenth. It's raw, and it's you know, it's everything one of these you know grindhouse kind of movies should be. I went, "Okay, fair enough." So, um, and then after that, as you know, it became you know, Carrie, and it, you know, he went to outer space, and he went to hell, and he you know. Manhattan and stuff, and they were just fishing around trying to find some other place to put him. Uh, but when I did mine, I thought, for sure, I want to go back to the camp. I want to change the name because I thought, logically, if you're going to sell vacation homes in and around Crystal Lake, it can't be Crystal Lake. There's too many memories. Um, so, you know, it was already me trying to say, all right, if I'm going to stay there, can I still do the kills? but make the people likable. And a lot of the success I feel when on my Friday was I had a really great cast and we are still friends. I mean, fucking all of us, 30, almost 35 years later, you know, Facebook messages back and forth, the conventions, you know, calling up, uh, you know, I'm gonna buy a TV. What do you, what do you think about this one? I mean, we have, we bonded from that freaking time in the forest and have remained, you know, very close friends since, which is unheard of with making movies. You know, it's like, well, we'll stay in touch, and you never do. That's um, great. But that, that, that was great. So then, you know, as the years went on, and so many people were saying, why didn't you do a sequel? And I said, I just didn't have an idea. I still don't have an idea. Finally, I got an idea, like, just a little under two years ago, which is you know, Jason Never Dies. And I started to combine a couple of ideas, you know, setting it in the winter, but actually setting it on uh, Thanksgiving um, so that there was sort of a holiday, supposed to be a happy time, not happening, um, bringing in basically an all-female cast, not, not because it's the politically correct thing to do, but it's Catholic girls who are badass. They have to go to this basically retreat with this very nasty nun um, so that's sort of the, the conflict initially was between them and her. And then, of course, when Jason comes back, um, you know, that becomes, you know, the people he's got to fight. And these girls are badass. So, you know, I tried to create a lot of sequences that were different from before. A little bit of kickback from, of, from my Jason lives that's going to tie it together in a way that I think at least fans are going to find cool. Um, and then it was just a question of, all right, I got to get it out there. And Sean and um, Victor are still battling it out, what, nine years now uh, with the rights. So you can't make it. The fans are making their own versions of stuff, which I think is terrific that they raise the money and then they do it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just made a, it just released on Halloween, uh, um, Voorhees. It was a yeah. film he did. It was, I know uh, you guys have talked and you've been on it uh, and connected. He's Cody did a great job with that. He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. I was, you know, all of these things, you know, obviously I was involved with Vengeance. They called me and said, can we do a story of Jason's father? Would you be upset if we did? I said, no, do it. I mean, I'd love to see it. And then so CJ Graham's going to actually pay his father. I went, that's cool. I, you know, that's a great idea. 
And then could you be in the first scene and be the old caretaker, you know, with him? I, I would love that. So, you know, off I went. And they were all, you know, they had some idea what they were doing, but there was a lot of making it up as they went along to get things, you know, all the stuff they wanted. And if you've seen that, it is triple X in terms of the gore factor and how many kills are in it and stuff. It just went whole hog. And now they're doing a you know sequel to that, of which I'm returning to the to the uh, to, to that film as well. Um, so it, I just love these guys who are doing this, and you know, and some of them are really good, and some of them are like, mm, okay, they're trying, but they're just, you, know, you know, some that really you, you can see talent in there, and this is a great calling card for them, you know, getting you know movies later. It's like, oh, here, take a look at this. This is what I did with, you know, fifty thousand dollars. I uh, I really like. I saw Never Hike Alone is the one that I've seen, and I mm -hmm. thought that was amazing. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really good. And then at the end, Tommy Jarvis, played by Tom Matthews, shows up again, and I geeked out. I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> they should have brought Tommy back for Freddy vs. Jason, and it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. was yeah. Vincent, who, who wrote and directed them, was this whole baby, um, you know, found me, at, asked me to come to a screening. I ran into all these makeup effects people, all these other people, and they go, have you seen this yet? And I said, no, you're going to shit, man. You're going <laughs> to see what's happening in this. And of course, you know, he had a, a number of small homages to Jason Lives in there, not major. But then when, you know, Tom Matthews showed up, I was like, holy shit, wow, that's great. I like that twist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, you gotta, that's, that's such a testament to how great your movie is, too. Because again, like, I don't, I, you know, I see a lot of these fan films come out, and in some way, shape, or form, they are tied to part six. Yeah. And, you know, that, thank you for that. You know, you gave us such a great movie for sure. Um, and also, I want to—I wanted to say I thought you did an amazing job on the uh, TV movie for, about the DC sniper. Mm -hmm. I thought that was uh, you because I, you know, I lived around the area at that time, and I still—I I live here again now. Um, I'm in Winchester, Virginia, but like that was such a big thing for. Uh, oh God, yeah, it, it was terrifying for every place. I mean, they were scared in in Paris and in London, and you know, to see the news footage. And all the stuff when I was researching, I went, this guy whose only agenda initially was to kill a few people around his ex-wife. And then when she dies, she's just one of the many that got killed in that area. Right. And it took off, you know, when somebody saw a white van and somehow associate that with terrorism. And now he started like, okay, we're going to, you know, up our game here. And it, and it was a father, the way I approached it, it was a father and son story. Him and Malvo, he had this kid trained and he had this kid, like he would feed him when he did, you know, great shots. And they worked it out so that, you know, Muhammad was on a walkie talkie and the one in the, in the trunk and the kid would take aim through a little hole in the back. And when he, you know, when somebody was lined up, he says, got him, you know, okay. And, and then I had him, you know, add, you know, some, something about Allah, praise to Allah, something and bang. Um, and this kid was an amazing shot. I, I, the fact that you know he nailed so many people, and he was like yeah. what 17, 16? I don't know. It's 
Yeah, I saw drawings in, uh, uh, that, his, that he did while he was in prison, and he was really a good artist. I mean, he just like a graphic artist, really creative, and obviously never going to get that chance. Um, he just hooked up with this guy, and you know, the rest is, you know, <laughs> serial killer history. For sure. I mean, but you did, you could tell you did such a great amount of research for that. You know, so that, that, just wanted to make, mention that. I thought that was fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the TV movies, um, it was like in the 80s, I had Freddie and I had Jason and I had Stephen King, you know, um, you know, into the early 90s and stuff. So basically all the sort of iconic horror people I, I felt I was I had done. But then when I got into television stuff and cable stuff, it was global warming, it was um, abuse, it was uh, alcoholism and mental illness and, you know, serial killers. And I mean, all these like real monsters. I mean, people that did shit that you go, how do they sleep at night? And you find out very well, because the psychopath has no conscience about that. In fact, worse, he feels he's doing, you know, the world a service by getting rid of this, you know, this piece of scum or making his agenda you know, clear of what, whatever his message is. So, you know, talking to people on death row, you know, when you're doing the research and things, it was very chilling to, to get involved in, in that world. And, you know, the movies would play on a Sunday night and gone, and maybe some of them show up on DVD, but, you know, just kind of disappear like early silence, you know, they, they just made them for entertainment's sake and then kind of dumped them. Uh, yeah, there's so much that just, it's just, it's sad. It's sad to think about sometimes because I think back on stuff. And I'm like, can I find that, you know? Yeah. It took me forever to find sometimes they come back. Really? I had to hunt for it. And now that, that's one that, like, people know. I mean, it's yeah. readily available now, but when it first came out on DVD. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. Um, and I was so happy that Sony, was it? no, MGM um, actually did uh, of the, Blu-ray version, and they actually called me and actually asked me to come in and check the color and the sound and everything. So, most times these guys don't do anything like that. So that you know, what's what survives is this shitty version of the movie that has nothing to do with what me and the DP were trying to do initially. Did you say Blu-ray? There's a Blu-ray release of Sometimes They Come Back. Is it? Is I, I could be wrong because I I confuse when things come out like all the Fridays, you know. Some that of them were on Blu-ray, some not. Now they're all on Blu-ray on that big box set. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't actually. But no, it oh, did. No, you're right. right. It did. I need to buy that. If it, if I I could, as I said, I could be totally wrong. I just remember the cover was blue, and the guys are on there, and it, and I thought it said Blu-ray, but maybe it just said special edition. Some shit. It's on Amazon now. That's awesome. Well, you're going to get some residuals from me because I will be purchasing that this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad it's on Blu-ray. I still have the VHS. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, it looks so much better on, on DVD and you know, good TVs and proper, you know, I think the first version, too, was was not widescreen. They, they copied the television version. That the sides were cut off. Mm, yeah. Well, I, uh, I just, I, I have uh, one more question. Um, is there any other horror icon character that you would have loved to have a chance to direct? Well, you want to know how stupid I am. I received a script called Scary Movie, 
by Kevin Williamson, and I read it, and I went, I mean, it's opening scene. I sort of made this movie, didn't I? And I mean, it's great, I, you know, but I don't want to kind of follow the same pattern that I did before, so I let it go. And basically, you know, I read all these other scripts and nothing was any good. At least that was a good script and I just had to get over myself, called the agent back. It's like, nope, too late, Wes Craven just grabbed it. And of course, it would have been great to be part of that franchise as, as Wes was. Um, I thought, you know, that was that same thing I was trying to do. And then years later, I... had a meeting i gotta be honest with you if it wasn't for your jason lives i probably wouldn't have written screen the way it was and i went are you kidding oh thank you <laughs> but you want to hear what a jerk i was and then you know relate the story about passing on it uh but it, it it did kind of have that impact and it wasn't like people hadn't done you know funny horror things before but somehow, I guess, because it was a franchise and he was such an icon and there was a particular style that was established over five films, I think breaking out of that, you know, helped. Um, and because I had a comic comedy background, I could try to monitor it so it wouldn't be silly comedy. You know, you mm -hmm. know, be, you know just like the opening with the James Bond thing. You know, if you laugh at that, it's like, okay, welcome to what this movie is going to be like. Um, so I tried to put stuff in that you know, made it, um, I don't know, somehow cool to the people who were horror fans. And I didn't want to celebrate great gory effects, but I wanted them to be supernatural kinds of kill. I mean, you know, punching out a heart, twisting the head all the way around, pulling it off. I mean, totally unimitatable kills. Uh, and that to me also was important for me that it wasn't just you know, jab a chicken with a knife and cut her open and then walk away. To me, there wasn't a lot of great classic horror aspects to that, you know. Mm -hmm. That kind of shit goes on way too much in our lives. I like the subtle look Jason gives when he rips the guy's arm off that's holding the machete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, CJ did a great job. Uh, he, you know, ex-army, any, anything I told him to do, yes, sir. And he did it. I mean, he executed things exactly in that kind of Terminator style, which I like better than the kind of loping, you know, kind of Jason, which is great on its own. But once you get hit with a lightning bolt and you're unkillable, there's got to be something that looks a little not quite 100% human, you know, about him. Uh, but, you know, Kane Hodder came in after that, and I, I love his Jason, too, but with the breathing that he does. You know, and you know, time it takes it in a yet another direction. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, I'm happy for all that we have, but it would have been cool to see what you would have done with it. You know, going forward, I thought Jason's father idea was amazing. You know, yeah, it, I, it would have been, you know, as I said, kind of a different departure. But I so understood why Frank was concerned about. Not putting that out there when people were already—I mean, it hurt our box office considerably when we first opened. There was a lot of old, old-school fans that going, "I'm not going to see this. Um, I know what it's going to be," and you know, it hurt. And it didn't help that it was the second week of uh, Cameron's Aliens, 
you know, that was going on. So people saw that the first week and it's like, fuck it, let's go see aliens two again. So, you know. Oh, yeah. So we were number two instead of number one. And, uh, you know, of course, that was sort of a first that you know, happened and it was kind of a repercussion. But as the years have gone on, it's amazing to me. It has become, you know, so much of a fan favorite and everybody has their different reasons and they, you know, call mine anything past that is zombie Jason and anything before that is, you know, actually human Jason. I don't know how human Jason did some of the things he did and I never intended him to be a zombie. You know, to me, it was the Frankenstein rule, dead body, lightning, boom, you know, you're reanimated and that's that. You know, he's not doing any of the George Romero zombie things, but, you know, they'll come back and, you know, say these are, there's other kinds of zombies, you know, and sure. argue that and I go, all right, you win. Okay, he's, he's a zombie. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad yes. CJ connected us because this has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. You're one of my was... favorite people. And again, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Oh, my yes. pleasure. And, uh, and so CJ long. is as great as he comes off to everybody. I mean, knowing him so long, he's, he's just got a heart of gold and very funny. You know? And I, I definitely, I mean, I wrote this sequel to my Jason Lives totally with him in mind to do it and, and you know with his style and tried to put some a couple of things that are a little different you know um on Jason um but totally logical totally like okay that would make sense why that would happen and uh you know talked quite a bit to CJ about it so you know, we're all waiting to see if it can be done you know, if that, that, that can happen no I hope it is and uh, where can everybody find you on social media? Uh, well, there's a couple places. Um, obviously, Facebook. I'm, you know, uh, Tommy uh, McLaughlin on there. Uh, there's a TommyMcLaughlin.com. Um, I've got a band, The Sloss. Um, so the Sloss uh, .org, org. There's all the crazy shit I've been doing for the last ten years on stage, and you know, with the album called Back from the Grave, you know, everything has got some sort of edge that's kind of in the horror vein of a bit. Um, and so that, you know, can certainly look up our stuff or just go on YouTube and put the Sloss band and, you know, see my crazy ass out there going like, how old is he? <laughs> so it was, a, you know, another creative escape and getting a chance to do what I did at 16, you know, in my 60s. So. It, it all was great. That's awesome. That's Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been yeah, wonderful. Check out everybody. Check out the scenesnobs.com. Check out 3geeks.ninja. And for everybody else, have a great night. Take care.